go to the Lord in prayer. And so, again, my goal tonight will be to walk us through Matthew for the first portion, and then uh, we can take a break for a moment, and then uh, we'll have a quiz that we'll go through of Matthew, and then prep you for your reading of Mark this week. It'll seem almost like a week off in, in the sense of it's, you know, much, obviously, a great deal smaller than uh than uh, Matthew is. Matthew is between 18 and 19,000 words. Uh, Mark is 11. So I kind of give you an idea. 11,000. And so, anyway, so let's, let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you so much for every person here and the opportunity today to worship you by studying your word and seeking to know you better. Obviously, Lord, we are going to be looking in the next series of weeks at 27 different books, and we really want to understand them better and know them better. We really want, Lord, to have a clear understanding uh, as tools for ministry for ourselves, therapy for ourselves, and ministry to others. So, Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit and teach through me now. Keep me really clear and concise so that we can understand what we need to understand in this. And, Lord, that when we look back at Matthew, we'll be that much more clear on, uh, on what we're dealing with here. So, Lord, I just thank you and I praise you. Bless this time, I pray. Encourage us in this time. And may, let me get, uh, let us all get more than just head knowledge. But, Lord, as well, let us get clarity and exhortation and encouragement and challenges we need to, equipping us for every good work. So, Lord, prepare us now. And, uh, and I just love you. Thank you, Lord, for the time that each one of these people have put into this week of, of reading your, your beautiful book. And so, Lord, I pray we could honor you in our study of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Matthew is the gospel with the most chapters. 28 chapters. Uh, Luke has 26, but it has more words for what it's worth. Um, uh, 24 chapters for Luke. Uh, there are 1,071 verses. Oh, God bless you. There are 1,071 verses in Matthew is where there'll be 11,000, I'm sorry, 1,151 in Luke. All that to say there's more words in Luke. Uh, it has the most Bible quotes. As a matter of fact, it will have more Old Testament quotes and allusions than the rest of the Bible combined. That tells you, or the rest of the New Testament combined. So that tells us uh, in regards to that. Uh, 42% of, of Matthew is original. And what I mean by original is that in the words, you can't get it in any of the other Gospels. Uh, 20% of the subject matter will be unique to, uh, to Matthew. To give you an idea, and this is why of the, hardest, of the four books, the hardest one to just teach, to be honest, is Mark uh, in, a, in an overview because only 3% of the material in Mark is original, or is unique, I should say it that way. As where Luke, for instance, 35%, and John, 94% of John is, is unique material. So you can get an idea. It's like if we didn't have the Gospel of John, you know, if you think about it, you know, basically 19 out of 20 things uh, in the Gospel of John aren't found in any other Gospel. So that's kind of key. Uh, it is also three-quarters of which is teaching this Gospel of Matthew. Um, and you probably noticed that. A lot of teaching, which will be the opposite in Mark. Very little teaching in Mark. Matter of fact, only about a quarter of it then is narrative. In other words, where you're just kind of telling the story. Uh, what we know about the writer is that uh, he, according to Matthew, he's called Matthew, sitting at the tax office. He's called Matthew the tax collector in Matthew 10.3. Mark calls him, though, Levi, 
the son of Alphaeus. That's Mark 2.14. And that's important because you don't traditionally call someone something from a tribe you're not, traditionally. And the reason I say that is it's fairly likely that this guy's original name was Levi or Levi. We would say Levi. And that he would be somebody then from the tribe of Levi, which means he was from the priestly tribe. To be honest, I think the fact that him quoting so many Bible verses actually helps justify that or substantiate that mindset. That this guy clearly had some deep understanding of Old, of Old Testament scripture. And the only guys that really had that much access to it would have been someone from the Levite tribe. So, for what that's worth. It's also interesting that as a result of that, one of the words that he uses a great deal, and I don't use it a lot on quizzes, but I think it's a really important one, is the word hypocrite. Uh, as a matter of fact, he will quote it, he will use the word 15 times. To give you an idea, the other three Gospels combined only use it five times total, which means that Matthew uses the term three times more than the other Gospels combined. They give you an idea. So now I'm putting these things together in my own head. Maybe somebody that was raised in the tribe of Levi, he saw a lot of hypocrisy, and in seeing a lot of hypocrisy, he decides to do the one thing that was as anti-Jewish as anyone could do, which is be a tax collector. You were working for the enemy, you know, because you weren't just working for somebody that subjugated or dominated the Jewish people, but you actually worked to demand to get money from them to help sponsor them to do that for you. You were actually so hated as a tax collector that you could not, uh, you could not vote you could not hold a, a place in a jury, and your, even your testimony in the court was inadmissible because you were considered less than a human being. By the way, although Matthew will mention tax collector a great deal, do you know who else will mention tax collectors a great deal? Luke. And one of the reasons is, we'll see when we get to the Gospel of Luke, he really focuses on what we might call the marginalized the outcasts, the fringe people. And there's a lot of that, for instance, like the Good Samaritan, a lot of fringe people are really being drawn into the Gospel of Luke, for what it's worth. Uh, again, so that, and because of that, he will use the term, for instance, fulfilled, and that becomes a really important term here. You see it on your, uh, on your page as well. He will use that in one manner or another over 30 times, 15 directly that it would be fulfilled. That tells me something, by the way. Now, I could see a guy like this seeing a lot of hypocrisy in the priesthood, seeing a lot of, um, what's the word I'm looking for, a, a, lot of, um, a lot of dishonesty in the government really wanting the real Messiah to come. And so God, in his kindness, commissioned him to write about Jesus being the king of kings, the king over all. I, I think that's amazing that God would do that, and it makes sense. When we look at our four Gospels, by the way, I'd like to break it up historically into three sections. There is the time where Jesus is basically teaching in Galilee. He will make trips, of course, down to Jerusalem for feasts. But for the most part, his ministry is in, in Galilee. Then he, will, uh, then he will take the trip down from Galilee to Jerusalem. And then he'll have that last week in Jerusalem where he'll ultimately die and resurrect. So there are the three. So we have sort of an essence. For the most part, the Galilee ministry, the trip down and then the uh, death and resurrection, the, the last week in, in Jerusalem. And I'll give you an idea what the way that kind of looks. In the Gospel of Matthew, for instance, 72% of 
uh, his gospel focuses on that Galilee ministry, that first section. Because, of course, a lot of it, of course, is this issue with the king and his challenges. Mark will do the same. 56% of his gospel is dedicated to that Galilee ministry. But Luke, on the other hand, his primary focus, interestingly enough, is the trip down. 48% of what Luke teaches us is Jesus going from Jerusalem in 952 all the way down to the middle of 19 when he actually does his triumphal entry, and we kind of call that his entrance into Jerusalem. It's where John, by the way, Jesus actually shows up in Jerusalem by chapter 12. And so if you include chapter 21, even though a lot of that happens in Galilee, you're really kind of looking at another 48%. Almost half of John's gospel is that last week. So we'll do that again. Matthew, and the, we're looking for majority. The Galilee, Matthew, the, the majority is Galilee. Mark, the majority is Galilee. Luke, the majority is walking down. John, the majority is then the time in Jerusalem. Does that make sense? So that's kind of what we have to kind of work with. Now, we don't have directly recipients stated. The only gospel that has a recipient directly stated is Luke. But wait, because of the use of all of these Old Testament quotes, you kind of get the idea that he's writing to a Jewish audience. The very people who would have cursed him, by the way, and said he wasn't worthy to live as a tax collector. Uh, because he is a tax collector, he would have learned by seminars. You know, even to this day, guys that are accountants and so forth, though they go to school for it, they still continue to go and do these kind of one-day seminars to refresh themselves on the new tax laws or accounting laws or whatever. And in the same way, he does the same thing. Notice here, by the way, in essence, there were seven major sermons for which then we highlight three of them. The first, the Sermon on the Mount, in 5 to 7. The second, in chapter 10, the Sermon of Ascending. The third, the Sermon on John the Baptist, when, they, when John is actually trying to check with Jesus, and Jesus then backs, up, backs him up. Uh, chapter 13, the Kingdom Parables, the Sermon. There's seven Kingdom Parables there. And 18 to 20, who is the greatest? Chapter 23, when he does the woe to you scribes and Pharisees, and he hypocrites, 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 the whole thing. And then finally, his last sermon, chapters 24 and 25, the Sermon of the End Times. Does that make sense so far? Okay. Because now I'm going to actually kind of go and walk us through the books, but I wanted to give us kind of a rough idea from the beginning of this. Uh, it's important to note, by the way, the term Kingdom of Heaven is exclusive to the Gospel of Matthew. What that means is anytime you see the term the Kingdom of Heaven, it's going to be in the Gospel of Matthew. The kingdom of God will be mentioned in all four of them, including Matthew. But the kingdom of heaven, exclusively that of the Gospel of Matthew. So that's a really easy one. Anytime you look at the term, you're looking at these, which one of these is in Matthew, and you see the term kingdom of heaven, that's clearly in Matthew. That's kind of how that works out. Now, if we were to break the book up in a way for us to help understand a flow of a book, versus we kind of know some details, might I put it this way? We know that Matthew's presenting Jesus as king. And we know that he's presenting as king overall. But might I say it this way, that Jesus is king of the hill. And the reason I say that is, is that each one of them will kind of have a focal point that we might keep going back to. And for Matthew, that will be an elevated a hill. And we'll see that five different times. And so you see this particular page, this should help you. Because what you'll do is when we get to them, each one of them has kind of a theme when you get, in other words, what will happen is the, the chapters will work their way up to that hill, 
there'll be some, some major event, then they'll work to the next one, and there'll be a major event. Then they'll work to the next one, and the major event. And that will happen five times through the Gospel of Matthew. That will help us understand the Gospel of Matthew as well. Does that make sense? Good. I'm seeing nodding. All right. And of course, the whole point is, is because he's a king, the kingdoms will be a clash. This kingdom is, this king is coming to reclaim his kingdom, but what's clear is there are other kingdoms set up that have no interest in him being there. So let's take a look at how that unfolds. First of all, chapter one, that's, and again, I know you've read through the book, so now I can just kind of summarize it. Chapter one, there's the lineage. And we get from that, we, we find that the lineage goes through King David, and the birth is announced to Joseph. That tells us Jesus fully qualifies because he is in the tribe of, he's from the tribe of Judah, but also from the lineage of David. Although it tells us through Joseph, because the king is handed down from father to son, not mother to son, although she's also from the tribe of Judah and from the lineage of David as well. So he steps into the ring as a baby. Joseph is highlighted in the nativity narrative versus Mary. He's called a just man in verse 19, and in verse 20 he's called the son of David. Of course he is. And again, the kingdom is handed from father to son. The Jewish lineage, by the way, goes from the past until now. That's the way the Jewish people do it. The Greeks did it backwards. And so what they'll do is they'll actually start with, you know, with Mary and essence and go all the way back to Adam, the first man, because that's what Luke would do. So we know that that's, of course, a man. But Jesus, simplest point in chapter 1, Jesus qualifies as, that he qualifies in the family as being from the tribe of Judah and from the lineage of David. Chapter 2, now we see the three responses to Jesus' arrival. And it is important to note, note, and this will be a common theme, with every declaration of the king, there will be conflict. And you'll see throughout this, there will be a declaration of the king, and then there will be conflict. Declaration, because two kingdoms are clashing in conflict. So, the trinity of responses. What do we have first? We have the child is born into a hostile world where there is no intention of anyone wanting to bow to him from those other kingdoms. So Herod the king, and notice in chapter 2, verse 1, he is called Herod the king. Because obviously he's the opposing incumbent king, and he's got a throne to protect. And he sees Jesus as competition and a threat. The second response is the religious leadership, who, by the way, are all head and no heart, no action. They know where the king is supposed to be, but none of them seem to show up there. That's weird to me. If they were hungry for the Messiah to come and his kingdom to reign, why in the world did they go and check it out themselves? And then finally, of course, the wise men. Now, hear me on this. Back all the way in Genesis chapter 25, I don't know if you know this, Abraham, after Sarah dies, gets married again. I remind you, his son was born, you know, Abraham was, if you think about it, he was 100 years old when his boy was born. And yet, after that, he has a couple more kids. But he has a gal named Keturah that he marries, and then he has six more kids. And, I mean, the guy, by the way, is going to die at 175. So, you know, if you think about it, at 100, it's basically like his midlife crisis. Well, with that, those six kids, by the way, are a threat to the inheritance. So what he does is he gives them gifts. And he sends them eastward, is what it says in Genesis 25. So get this. Sons of Abraham, not sons of Sarah, but sons of Abraham, are given gifts and then are sent east. 
Well, then it tells us that the, the promise was when Messiah would return, that the children of Abraham would be called back. They would come back in the land, and they would bring gifts. The question is, what would be their gifts? In Isaiah chapter 60, verse 6, it says this, the dromedaries, and that's one type of camel, there's like dromedaries and backs, the difference is one hump or two. It says that they would, listen to this, that they would cover the land of Midian, or come from the land of Midian, of Ephah and Shiva. That's the area of the east. And it says, and they will bring gold and incense and proclaim the praises of the Lord. Interesting. We have Abraham's sons that were given gifts, sent east, the promises they would return. Isaiah says that when they returned, they would bring gold and incense. Now, wise men show up from the east, and they are bringing gold, frankincense, and myrrh. What is frankincense and myrrh? Incense. And it's exactly as Isaiah had promised. I just love the way that God works. Now we have a declaration, again, of the king. So as they come and they bring that, we would imagine the king emerges, and with that, of course, with every declaration comes conflict. What happens as a result of that? Well, obviously, Herod, the king, seeks to extinguish the flame of that revolution. And what does he do? He kills the innocent, but God is there, and though there is death, Herod is unsuccessful. He cannot stop the king. And that's Jesus' babyhood. And that is, if you think about it, the challenge of what the rest of the book is going to be like. The king is declared, the king is resisted, and the king overcomes. It's kind of the way it works. Now, we start working our way up the hill as Jesus emerges in chapter 3. John the Baptist shows up, and as John the Baptist shows up, of course, now when the kingdom is starting to be proclaimed again, as a matter of fact, that's exactly what he says in chapter 3, verse 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven, or remember the kingdom of heaven unique to Matthew, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And just like that, of course, with the declaration comes conflict. And he's the one, John the Baptist is the one who introduces the term kingdom of heaven, for what it's worth. With that then, it doesn't take but a couple verses, verse 7, and we see then the religious leaders, Pharisees and Sadducees showing up, and he says, through the vipers who warned you to flee the, the judgment to come. Now, as that's the case, so again, there's the declaration of the king, and then there's the resistance of the incumbent. With that then, Jesus emerges, and as he emerge, emerges, hear me close on this, as he is baptized, the Father makes this statement. Now hear me closely, because in all three of the Gospels where Jesus is clearly shown as being baptized, that in all three of them, the Father makes this statement, Oh, someone's here. Yeah, go ahead. In all three of them, the Father makes this statement, and it's listed differently. And it's important to note these three statements and now, the one, does anyone want to guess what gospel really doesn't emphasize the Father speaking and all that? Well, for what it's worth, consider this, that the Father is going to identify, here is the king, he's going to identify the, the man, and he's going to identify the servant. Now, here are the three different statements. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. You are my son in whom I'm well pleased. You know, um... You are my son, and you I am well pleased. Do you hear the three differences? This, if you think about it, hey, that is, 
If you hear the three statements, in one of them, God is exclusively speaking to everyone else about his son. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. In one of the three, God is exclusively speaking to Jesus. You are my son, in you I am well pleased. Do you hear the difference? This is to everyone else about him. This one is specifically to him. And the other one, this is my son, in you I am well pleased. And this, in the third one, there is this case where there's something in between. The one where he's telling everyone else, he's a king. Would that make sense? The one where he's saying, you are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased, that's a man. Because that's what we need to hear. And the one that's the serpent, it's both. You need to know you're my beloved son, but everyone else needs to know I'm still well pleased. So there is that in all three of them. So for what that's worth. Here, because Jesus in his baptism emerges, the Father says, Hey everybody, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You guys need to know I'm well pleased with this guy. Because he's the king and God's declaring that. Does that kind of make sense? No. King is declared, there's going to be resistance, and we're working our way up the hill. Then what happens? Jesus immediately goes head to head with Satan. And now there is this challenge in chapter 4. As the challenge in chapter 4, two kingdoms are at battle, the king and Satan. And it's important to note, by the way, that of the three Gospels, and I'll develop this again later, two of them really focus on the three things Satan pulls out in his artillery. Mark doesn't, by the way. Mark just says he was tempted for 40 days in the wilderness and then he came out of it. But Luke, as a man, and, and uh, Matthew as king, compares the two. And they're in different order, by the way. They're both start with the same one. Turn the stone to bread or turn these stones to bread. But in both of them, it starts with that hunger. But the last of your three is your strongest punch, if that makes sense. It's the one that you know this is, if all else fails, use this one. For in the Gospel of Luke, where the focus is on Jesus being a man, the last one was throw yourself in the temple and let the angels catch you. And all that is is pride. Show off so everyone can see you for who you really are. Because the one thing that can take down man more than anything is pride. But as a king, that's not the last one listed. As a king, the last one is, see all these kingdoms of the world? I'll give them to you if you bow down to me. Wouldn't that make sense? That would be the one for the king? Because again, that's the greatest strike he can offer. Needless to say, again, there's a proclamation, there is the resistance or conflict, but Jesus, of course, emerges victoriously. That's what we would expect. And we're working our way up now the hill of our first hill. What happens as a result of that, Jesus leaves there, and as he leaves there, by the way, um, the first thing he does, he starts to recruit. And he recruits four guys that we know as fishermen, and they, and they begin to preach, as Jesus is preaching, the gospel of the kingdom, and listen to this, and they brought to Jesus a new set of gifts. In chapter 2, I'll remind you, the wise men brought the gifts of gold and incense. But the greatest gift to the king is neither of those. So what did the disciples bring? Because it's when they brought to him, they bring to him people. And as they bring to him people, the possessed, the powerless, the paralyzed, Jesus heals them all. So get this. We're working our way up. And from that then, at the beginning of chapter 5, we read Jesus climbs a hill. And that's our first hill. Our first hill happens to be, by the way, Jesus' first sermon. So get this. Let me cap that up. 
What happens is John the Baptist declares there's resistance from the religious leadership. Again, kingdoms in conflict. Jesus is baptized. The Father testifies. There's a couple witnesses. Then Jesus goes head to head against the enemy, and there's kingdoms in conflict. Jesus, again, is victorious. He calls his guys, four of them. They says, and they brought to him these people. Jesus heals them all, and he goes up on a hill, and he now speaks to them. And that's what we call the Sermon on the Mount. If it's a mount, what is mount short for? Mountains. Yeah. You know, and the idea is, our first hill experience is Jesus talking to a group of people who just this morning were possessed or paralyzed or were sick in some form. You know, were dying of AIDS or had cancer or were on a cr- in crutches or being carried because they were completely paralyzed. These are the people, but now what in the world are you? So our king on our first hill, and might I say it this way, our first hill would be the hill of, well, let me say it, our hill, first hill is the hill of conversion. Because here we're converted. Now, not converted like we're sick because he hasn't died on the cross yet, but we're converted from being the possessed gal, from being the guy dying with cancer, to not being that. But the question is, now that we're not that, who are we? And so Jesus starts the message in chapters 5 through 7. And let me make it clear, kind of simple the way it is. Our king is now up on our first hill. And on our first hill, you know, he tells us, listen, here's the point. You're blessed. And you're salt of the earth and you're light of the world. In other words, the first thing he teaches is this is who you are. Second, he teaches who he is. He's the fulfillment of all scripture. And then this revolution we're going to start has to start in the heart. Not on the external. It starts in the heart. And he goes, either it'll be murder and adultery in your heart, or it will be commitment and love in the heart. But one of the two is going to be the case. Because the counterfeit will always be on the surface. So be careful how you give and how you pray and how you fast. Because to be honest, all of that can be done for all the wrong reasons. And that's exactly what the religious the other kingdom is basically doing right now. So the epicenter of the whole thing, what you really treasure is where your heart's going to be. What's really important to you is where your heart's going to be. And this will affect the way that you judge others, or not judge others, then this will be a, this will completely affect the way that you approach God in prayer. Because if your treasure is in heaven, you will approach God differently, and you'll approach everyone else differently too. So do this. Don't just know it. Do that. And that's the entirety of the message, if you will, in chapter 5 through 7. And now, Jesus has to come down the hill. And as he comes down the hill, we see the kingdom in action. So our first hill is our hill of conversion. The people have now experienced Jesus, and they've had some kind of experience with him. They're not going to—they're never going to be the same. Hugo came there with one leg; he's leaving with two. He will never be the same. Now, as that's the case, what we start to see is that Jesus shows that the kingdom what it looks like in action. Interesting. What he does is he shows his authority over leprosy, over the wind and the waves. Or in other words, over the natural and then over the supernatural with the demoniac legion. And then he shows his power over uncleanness and over paralysis. And in the midst of all of that, he calls Matthew. Because Jesus is recruiting more people. Remember what happened when he called the four? They went out and brought people and Jesus transformed them. So what do you think happens? He starts to bring more people in. They're going to go get more people. And he's going to start to transform them. So we start to climb our second hill. Chapter 10. And look, we're almost halfway through the book, believe it or not. Chapter 10, 
Jesus starts prepping 12 people. He hand selects to be sent out. That's what apostle means. And he warns them that there's going to be opposition. I remind you, with the declaration of the kingdom, there's going to be conflict. So, Jesus says, by the way, in chapter 10, verse 7, as you go preach, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But be forewarned, there will be conflict. And it says then in chapter 10, verse 18, you'll be brought before governors and kings for my, my sake, but God is going to be there and there's still going to be victory. Verse 19 says, they'll deliver you up, but don't worry about how you should speak, for they'll be given to you in that hour what you should speak, or for it is not you who speak, but it is the, God, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. So what do you get? He's like, I'm going to send you out to do the same, go and preach the kingdom of heaven is within grasp, but there will be conflict. They're going to arrest you. You're going to stand before governors and kings. But look at There's the conflict. But stop freaking out. You're going to win. So stop freaking out about what you're going to say. The Holy Spirit will speak to you. So there it is again. The declaration, the conflict, and God being there, and therefore there is victory. So, now the conflict becomes more bold as we get ready for our second hill. So the opposing kingdom becomes more bold. They imprison John the Baptist. And as they imprison John the Baptist, you know, people start freaking out about that. And Jesus says this then in 11.29. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. God's kingdom is a kingdom of rest. That's still one I have to learn. Now, as that is the case, Herod is trying to protect his throne. He starts on the offensive, imprisons John the Baptist. The scribes try to protect theirs. They mount an offense on him, trying to get him about Sabbath law. And you know what the people say in 1223? Could this be the son of David? Well, who's the son of David? That's the king of kings. That's the Messiah. And then Jesus teaches us his fourth sermon, and that is the parables of the kingdom. Now, hear me on this for a moment. Because what we're going to see is two kingdoms in conflict again. He gives four parables, and here they are quickly. Forgive me for going so quick, but I want to be sensitive to time and get a flow on this. And then we'll try to kind of climb our hills again on our way to review. So we're on our way up the second hill. And, of course, the first one, I remind you, it's sort of like after defeating the enemy as a temptation, he recruits guys, they bring them to Jesus, and Jesus climbs the mountain and shows you, you're a brand new person now. How's that for a great first hill? The second hill now, the opposition becomes more bold. And as the opposition becomes more bold, Jesus becomes more bold about the whole thing as well. And with that, he goes, let me tell you about the kingdoms. He says, basically, this way, the kingdom of heaven is like this. First of all, in the first four, somebody's going to be so, so, or so seed on four different soil types. Three of them sprout up, or two of them sprout up, and really die sooner or later. One really never does anything. And then, except seed birds. And then the last one bears fruit. Sounds great. At least one of them did something, but the, lot, the other part, the majority of it didn't do very well at all. Then there's another one where now you see this field and it's really full, but unfortunately, part of it's actually poisonous. And they look the same. Wheat, by the way, that turns black only at its fruit is called darnel, but it looks just like wheat until it bears its fruit. And so in the second one, it, it also kind of leaves you with this kind of weird feeling. Like, well, this doesn't sound very good. Now, who wants that? And he goes, well, let me tell you another one. It's kind of like a mustard seed that is tiny, but it grows really, really big. But then the birds of the air make their nests in it. Now, that sounds all sweet and romantic, except the birds of the air were eating the seed in the first parable. They were actually the word stealers, if you will. 
So I don't really want them to build mess in something that I actually want to be a part of. So then I go again. Oh, this doesn't sound so great. And then he goes and he gives us a fourth one. It's like leaven, which throughout Scripture is not a real positive thing. It's, it's yeast. So it's, it's, then he goes, it's needed something was added into a lump, and then it infects the whole lump so the whole thing's a mess. And if those were the only ones, you'd be able to go, well, who wants to be a part of that? He goes, but let me tell you about a couple others. It's also like a guy who went to a field and he saw a precious jewel, and he wanted that jewel sold as a treasure. And what he really did is he went and he sold everything and bought the whole field to get it. And then it was a guy that was walking through that he was looking for the perfect pearl, if you will, and he found it, and he gave up everything to get it. And you realize the difference between those two and the others is the first four are political, and those two are personal. And if your kingdom of heaven, as far as you're concerned, is all about the politics, you're going to have problems too. If people are like, yeah, I went to church for a while, I tried God out, but then it turned, it turned out that the people there were just as messed up as I am. You know, it's funny, the person next to you could have gone, oh, I tried church too, but the person next to me was just as messed up as I was. You know, in the end of all, you can't go about politics. It's going to have to be about the person who so loved you that he gave up everything just to get you. That's the difference. Well, the only thing left is, well, where's the justice in that? Well, that's the seventh parable. It's just like a guy who drags the dragnet. You know, that's where you throw it at the bottom. You gather all the fish in. And then as you gather all the fish in, he goes, then the man that's in charge of it all will sort to him and tell you which ones are good ones and which ones are bad ones. So don't worry about it. In the end, God knows how to sort this whole thing out. So all of a sudden, you get this idea that Jesus says, look it, you need to stop freaking out about this. If what you're looking at is a really negative politic around you, well, that's actually, you've been warned. There are two kingdoms in conflict here. But there's another one, too. And unless you see yourself as that treasure that God gave everything for, you're going to always struggle in your walk with Christ. So, as that's the case, um, Jesus tells us that, and then what happens is those two kingdoms, just like when Jesus teaches, then you see the two kingdoms in action. You know what you see with the first one? Herod, at this point, seeking to defend his throne, kills John the Baptist. He went from putting him in prison to killing him. And the religious leaders at that point now have gathered with the scribes. Now they add, they add the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they demand a sign from Jesus. Well, that's pretty brazen. That's pretty rough. Now, we see the other kingdom, Jesus' kingdom. In his case, what does he do? He feeds 5,000 men and their families. That's 1421. He heals a Gentile woman who calls him the son of David. That's 1522. And then he feeds 4,000 Gentile men and their families in 1538. That's what our king does. And then he gives authority to Peter to walk on water because Peter says, I'm not walking out there, but unless it's really you, command me. If you're the king, command me to do so. And what's clear is Jesus gives men authority to do things as a king would. That's 1428. So on one side, there's the killing of John the Baptist. There's the standing against Jesus and demanding from him. And then there's the other side where the king is just blessing his people, feeding them and giving them authority. Well, there's our two kingdoms in, in conflict. And with that, then, what we see is that Jesus takes us up our second hill. Our first hill, I remind you, we recruited a, a bunch of guys, four guys. They gathered a bunch of people. He transformed them. And as they transformed them, then Jesus went up the hill and said, this is who you are now. This is what new life looks like. Now there's been opposition, and as there's been opposition and it's becoming clearer, Jesus heads up the second hill, and that's Matthew 17. And the second hill, by the way, now 
is not just of conversion, but now it's of conversation because Jesus is transformed. We know it as the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus now starts to glow and he's meeting with, with Moses and Elijah. Now, do you know what they're talking about? They, according to it, says literally in the Greek, they are talking about his exodus, is the term that's used. Interesting term. What they are talking about is Jesus' death. As Moses is the representative of the law, as Elijah is a representative of the prophets, what's clear is the only way to fully complete, as Jesus already told us, is the fulfillment of all scripture. The only way to fulfill all of the law and the prophets is the cross. And because that's the case, Jesus is up there, in essence, having a conversation, getting the clarity that this is what's going to happen, Jesus. They're going to die at the cross. Now, up to that point, he hasn't told anyone that. But from this point on now, things are going to radically change. They're going to change in a handful of ways. And so what we have is our first one around to gather a few guys. They gathered a bunch of people, and then Jesus taught them. That was our first tell. A conversion. Second one then, now he's gathered more people. There's 12 people. He sent them out, but now there's greater opposition, and Jesus comes up, and there's one of conversation, and that, of course, is going to be Jesus' commission to go out and to, uh, to die on the cross. Now, here's the sad part, is as we see that, you know, that that's the case, well, our first little experience is about transformation and conversion. Our second one about transfiguration and conversation with Jesus. Well, Jesus isn't just going to lead and teach and feed and heal. He's going to save. And with that, though, unfortunately, as that's the case, as Jesus emerges, by the way, again, the Father's going to testify again. And he says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Again, notice he's speaking to others. And then he says, listen to him. And then as he heads down, unfortunately, not every person got the same idea out of this that Jesus did. I mean, in essence, they're sitting there and going, Jesus, there's no other way. You're going to have to die. And you're going to have to die for the sins of everyone. And you can see Elijah as the representative, if you will, of the prophets going, you know what Isaiah says. You're going to have to bear the sins of everyone. The iniquity of everyone is going to have to be put upon you. And you're going to have to be crushed for it. But so Jesus, imagine heading down the hill, heads down a little bit differently. The problem is Jesus took three guys with him up there. And now, interestingly enough, now the conversation moves to who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. You ever wonder how that started? Well, I think it would be easy. Jesus is up on the hill with three of the guys. And they come down and imagine what they saw. And Jesus is like, you can't tell everyone all of this yet. Until it risen from the dead. And then we can start talking about this. You can imagine them just going down and going, oh, the things we saw. I can't tell you. But I tell you what, when the greatest happens in the kingdom of heaven... Clearly, there's three of us that are starting to look pretty good for that. Isn't that just the way of man? And now what we start to see is not only is our kingdom in conflict, but there's conflict even in the kingdom. And Jesus already told us that. I remind you, this is what happens when it gets political. It becomes selfish. And as he starts to head down, we start to see, and it's what's even worse is when he comes down, the other nine of them were trying to heal a kid that was possessed at the bottom of the hill, and they couldn't even heal him. And you could see, you know, the three that were up there going, well, if we were down there, we would have healed this guy instantly. And you could see already the division within them. Well, with it in mind, Jesus then responds to it. He responds to it, by the way, by telling them. He says, well, you know who the greatest is? And he teaches his fifth sermon. And in that, by the way, it's interesting because Jesus starts talking about 
you know, the lost sheep and the sinning brother and the unforgiving servant. It's got to be about finding the lost and forgiving the sinner and, 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 and about how that plays out and being out on the field and doing it, even if you weren't before, because that's what it really looks like. And now we begin to climb our third hill. So, first of all, he recruits a bunch of, he recruits four guys, they bring a bunch of people, heal them, he teaches, comes and he'll teach them about, transfer, about what it means to be transformed about conversion. Then, he has uh, 12 of them. The resistance is even greater now, of course. And he climbs the hill and he's transfigured and he has this conversation about his death. And now, everything kind of is flavored by the grave of the shadow of the cross because everything from this point on has the cross in front of them. Are you following me so far? Okay. Now, what happens is we now make our way into the, um, into Jerusalem for that last week. That's chapter 21. But let me say this. Back with the first hill. Four guys were gathered, ordinary people. They were just workers. They weren't theologians. They weren't celebrities or high profile. They were just guys doing their job. And all they knew was bring him to the king. And get him to the king, that would be everything. And he healed everybody that we brought. So he brings someone, he heals them, and you're like, oh, this is awesome. Let's go find some more sick people. You know, let's go find, oh, that guy's demon possessed. This is going to be fun. Quick, grab the chain. Let's go get that guy to Jesus. Oh, look at that guy. You know, she's freaking out. She's weird. And it's like, you know, at this rate, nobody's going to be left in Camden. You know, and it's like, let's just go get some more people. How fun is that? And understand, he takes off that, that, that first hill, and Jesus is like, okay, now you were all those things before, but you're not that now. That was the way we understood ministry. It was really simple. Bring him to the king. Bring him to the king. I don't have to understand your problem. Bring him to the king. I don't have to be an expert in what your issue is. You know, you can say, well, it's, it's psychological, it's emotional, it's, it's physical, it's whatever. I don't have to understand it to know that if I could bring him to the king, he could fix you. That is really simple. And because of that, I had faith. I saw Jesus do it, so let's just do it some more. I mean, let's face it, you drag a guy that's possessed and you're thinking, well, what's left? I love that. The second hill we kind of look at now, Jesus is like, okay, you're going to have to get to the cross. And as he starts to head down, imagine these guys are going, check out how good we are. You know, and then you see this and they're like, and you hear this argument. And Jesus is like, so what are you guys talking about? Now, I imagine Jesus is thinking, dying on the cross. And they're like, yeah, we were arguing over who's really the coolest of us. You get to Jesus going, are you kidding me? You get the idea. So as we begin to climb the third hill, chapter 21, Jesus is entering into, we know it as Palm Sunday. The people are crying out, Hosanna. Hosanna, by the way, means God, or literally, save now. And they call him the son of David. Shouldn't surprise us. And then with the declaration comes the conflict. The religious leaders take out their theologian, uh, theologian, theological weapons. The swords of their debate are sharpened and their foils are out. The Pharisees talk about taxes to Caesar. The Sadducees talk about the resurrection and marriage. The scribes talk about what the greatest command is. And Jesus advances and balustrades and strikes with, well, what about this David? Didn't David call, what did, what's the Messiah called? And they said, well, he, you know, who, you know, he's, well, the Messiah is the son of David. I'm like, well, how does David call his son Lord, when it says, the Lord said to my Lord, and he quotes from the Psalm 110. And you get the idea, they're like, well, we don't know. And Jesus has shut them down. And at the end of the challenge, Jesus won. Opposition, nothing. Jesus then shows the heart of his kingdom. He says, now that you see, I see yours is all about opposition. He says, let me show what the kingdom of heaven is like. 
It's like a king who arranged a marriage for his son. You guys are busy arguing over these politics, just like he taught us in 13. But really, it's about a marriage. It's about love, and it's about a relationship, and it's about intimacy, and you're missing all of that. So, with that, then Jesus teaches, and Jesus now mounts his open offense. Chapter 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! He says this in 23.13, You shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. You're not only not going in, you're stopping other people from going in. To the kingdom of heaven. And again, Jesus is making a statement. And then Jesus takes us up our third hill. You with me so far? First hill up in Galilee. Four fishermen, got people. Bring them to Jesus, bring them to the king, he'll fix them. He fixes them. This is who you are now. It's an issue of conversion. Then he got his twelve, he got his twelve, they the opposition mounts greater, and then with that Jesus up, he's transfigured, and now it's the conversation of the cross. The third one now, and by the way, that is up in this where we're in an exceedingly high hill, because the second one's the highest place. Then the third one now, Jesus is down in Jerusalem. As he's down in Jerusalem, he goes up to the Mount of Olives. And Mount is short for mountain. It's the mountain of olives. Don't forget that. And while he's up there, he gives what we know as the end time message of chapters 24 and 25. And in the end of it all, what is it about? It is about the king who has total victory over all of the world. Really, that's the bottom line of it. And he says this, and I'll give you a few verses. Look at, believe it or not, we're almost done. So it says, The kingdom of heaven will be like in the ten virgins, but first the gospel of the kingdom will be preached is a witness in all of the world is a witness to all the nations. That's twenty four fourteen. Twenty five one, the kingdom of heaven is like the ten virgins. Twenty five fourteen, the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who then gives his goods to his servants to use them. Uh, chapter twenty five verses twenty one and twenty three, he says that you are faithful in few things, I will make you a ruler over many. Now who can make someone a ruler? Someone who has the authority to grant authority. That's our king. Uh, it says in chapter 25, 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory with all of his holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory, who sits on a throne like that, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, like a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Then, of course, he says, I was hungry, I was thirsty, I was a stranger, naked, sick, prison, and you ministered to me. And then it says in verse 40, as they ask, when do we do that? It says, the king will answer what will he answer? He'll say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did this to the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And with that, then, that's what it looks like. That's our third hill. The third hill, by the way, for what it's worth, is we went from, uh, from conversion to conversation to conclusion. This is how the whole thing concludes. It concludes with Jesus having total victory over everything as the end times are standing before us. And he then grants grace. And now we approach the fourth hill. Now, I bet you probably know what the fourth hill is. Because if he's king of the hill, we know there's one hill waiting him, and that's Golgotha, the hill of the skull. So what do we have? Pilate says, as he's arrested now, it says in 27.11, Pilate says, are you king of the Jews? Jesus says, it is as he say. 
In 2729, the soldiers put a robe around him, a crown of thorns, give him a reed, and they say, Hail, King of the Jews. Uh, 2737, they put a title above him, This is Jesus, King of the Jews. Now, it's important to note, in all of these things, again, he's being declared king in mockery. But, as it's the case, he goes, and up the hill he goes, and then we have our, our, our fourth hill, and our fourth hill is the hill of conquering, and Jesus conquers everything. So we're a hill of conversion, our hill of conversation, our hill of conclusion, and our hill of conquering. So after the same guard, so now you have to start to wonder, well, what's the fifth hill then? I mean, wouldn't that be, I mean, shouldn't there just be four? Oh, is there another hill after this? By the way, do you know that Matthew does not record Jesus' ascension, ascending into heaven? Do you know there's one other gospel that doesn't either? John. Because as a servant who humbles himself, he is exalted to heaven. That's, Matt, that's Mark. As a man who surrenders himself to the will of the Father, he is exalted to the right hand of the Father. That's Luke. But God is already there. And the king is already there. So that's not the hill we're going to look at. Oh, by the way, we'll know that that hill is not of ours. Nonetheless, this is what we do know. After the fainting guards, the quaking earth, the rolling rock, and it tells us, by the way, that in 28.16, after all, Jesus presents himself alive. He shows himself as the conquering king of all, even death. And he tells them then, go back to Galilee. Remember that? He says, go back to Galilee and we'll meet you there. When they go back to Galilee, it says this. And for what it's worth, it's chapter 28, verse 16. The disciples went away to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. Hmm. There's another mountain. wonder which one that would be. Back in Galilee? Wasn't the first one in Galilee? And I get it. I get the whole thing. So follow me on this and tell me if this makes sense as we climb our fifth hill. Jesus emerges from the temptation victorious. He gathers his four fishermen. They, because all they knew was throw the nets really low and gather everything. That might be a boot, that might be a tire, but that will be fish. You go as low as you can and you get it all. And that's exactly what the disciples did, these fishermen. They threw the net low with people and they gathered the bottom dwellers. That was the broken. They bring them to Jesus. If I could bring them to the king and fix them, he did. And if you fix them all now, we're like, if you don't know who you are now, all you'll know is that you're an X something. And so what happens? Jesus climbs the hill and he says, Let me tell you who you are now. You converted your different people. That's our first hill. In Galilee. Where all we knew the ministry was simple. I get him the king, we fix him. So then the opposition happens and we start to see who really is superior. There's obviously money, there's obviously guards, and the opposition's getting bigger and brash and brash. And with that, then John the Baptist is killed, and all that Jesus has recruited 12 more. And with the, as the message grows, the conflict grows. And so with that, ultimately, Jesus goes up in a hill, and he's clearly above everything else. And there, it's like the greatest victory is going to be at the cross. So then we come back down from that second hill, where now there's the conversation of the cross. We go down that hill. As we get down that hill, Jesus enters into Jerusalem. As he goes into Jerusalem, there, there are the challenges. Because now it's the king, but there's a kingdom that really doesn't want to bow to him. 
And because they don't want to bow to them, they're going to challenge them with what they think they can win with, their theological weapons of debate. And so they throw out their things, Jesus shuts them all down. And as he shuts them all down, ultimately what happens is they're going to get the best they can. Interesting, the plan is hatched, it tells us, and don't miss this, at the palace of the high priest. Who has a palace? A king does. But the high priest has a palace? Because that's the opposing kingdom at this moment. As they hatch that plan, Jesus is arrested. He's brought up to the fourth hill. Uh, that, because he tells them, I'm sorry, we have the one of the end times. As we have the one of the end times, we see Jesus has got this whole thing handled and it'll conclude with his victory. Then he goes to the cross. That's our fourth hill. As he goes to the cross, he completely defeats our sin and shame. And then with that, he says, you guys, meet me back in Galilee. And then they go back to Galilee. And I just can't help but imagine that Jesus would take them back to the first hill. Well, you could see him going, remember what this place was like. And there were piles of crutches and chains. And there were people everywhere that were looking, going, who in the world am I now? And you know what you thought? If you could get them to me, I could fix them. Isn't that what you thought? It wasn't complicated. It wasn't political. It was personal. And all you knew is, if, I could, if you could get them to me, I could transform them. So we went, in essence, if you think about it, from conversion to conversation, right, to the conclusion of the end times, to the conquering at the cross, to the commission, as he turns to everyone else, and he says this, okay, guys, now that we're here, of all the places where you've seen what I can do, go. Go into all the world, and I want you to go and make disciples. I want you to go and make students. And I want you to baptize them. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, you're declaring, and you know what happens if you make the declaration, there's going to be conflict. But if there's going to be conflict, what we always see is God is with, and because God is with them, they'll be victorious, right? So this is how we answer. So listen, go and make disciples of all nations, all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And he goes, and lo, I'm with you always even at the end of the age. Why is he with us always? Why say that there? Because with your declaration, there'll be conflict. But God will always be with us so we'll overcome. So Jesus is like, go and make disciples, and if you make disciples, there will be conflict, but I'm going to be with you, so you're going to overcome. And that's the whole Gospel of Matthew. Hill to hill to hill to hill to hill. So one quick review. And then I want to pray for us in that. Because my prayer is that we would understand what Jesus did when he took us back to that last mountain, which was the first mountain. Which is, if I could just get him to Jesus, I could fix him. So, he recruits. As he recruits the four fishermen, they drag the net low with people, they bring him in, Jesus heals them, and then he gives a message on transformation. And there, uh, trans, you know, uh, conversion there on the first hill. Then from that first kill, he heads down. The opposition gets greater. John the Baptist is killed. Ultimately, they're standing before Jesus and just making his life rough. He goes to the second hill. That's the one of transfiguration where he gets his, where he has the conversation about dying on the cross. From there, then, we go down and we have our third one where Jesus is going to teach us what the end times are going to look like. And those men that are standing there in their power right now are going to have nothing to say. He'll be completely the one. This is how it concludes. And then he takes us up to the hill of the cross. 
where he conquers all our death and shame. And then he takes us back to the first hill. It's the hill of commission. And he says, now, guys, go and do it. You saw me do it. You know if you can get him to me, I fix him. Go and do it. And that's the gospel of Matthew in 45 minutes or less. Or however that was. So, want to pray for us? How's that? Your brain's oozing out of your head? And then we'll take a break, and we'll come back, and we'll go over a quiz and see how well you do on that. All right? Lord, I want to thank you so much for this beautiful book and what you've taught us already. And I pray, Lord, that you would minister to us now uh, in our break. And let us, Lord, be ready for the next book. And But, Lord, let us take the expectations we need in this. Let us not be afraid to declare your truth, because we know that in declaring your truth, there will be conflict. But you'll always be with us, and we will be victorious. Your Holy Spirit will speak through us when we're challenged by even the dignitaries of the day. And yet in all of that, Lord, you are always the one with great victory, and we thank you for that. And Lord, I pray that you would not allow us to complicate ministry. It's never going to be about politics. It's always going to be about you, the person, Jesus. May we never forget that. Thank you for being our King of Kings. Victorious over everything. Jesus, in your name. Amen. What we can clearly see throughout the Gospel of Matthew is a real emphasis on his kingdom. But not only an emphasis on his kingdom, an emphasis on man's kingdom in opposition to God's kingdom. Which, of course, he's always, Jesus is always going to win. So, uh, a couple of things in this, and that is really, I think it's two pages, yes, two pages, and take some two and then pass it down. You now have 110 questions, and the only thing that's on this is, I'm just going to, I'll read it, you guys tell me, is it in Matthew or not? No. The issue is not, is it in another gospel? And this is why, by the way, I am trying to put the verse markings down these are legitimate verse markings. In other words, whatever book it really is has this verse again. Now, ultimately, when we finish all four Gospels, we'll have another one like this that'll probably be about 300 or more questions. They'll have all of these numbers to the side here. That's the true verse for it. So by the time you're done, if you've got them all right, and you put, like, for instance, this one to the Gospel of John, you'd be like, well, that's John 1, 6, or whatever, because that's what... So you'll actually have, um, um, in essence, you'll have kind of a glossary for that. So. So what do you say now? Yeah, we'll, we'll go over them together, but yeah. So basically, in this one, my suggestion is... Yeah, um, yeah. or you can even just put MT for the ones that are, because you know you're preparing for... When, when we get to the next three. Now, the problem with, I remind you, the problem with, especially something like Mark, because, again, there's only like 3% unique material, is <laughs> I'll have to bring a lot of other verses that really reinforce the fact that he's presenting Jesus as servant. <coughs> that, of course, will then be found in other... <laughs> that, of course, will be found in other... Uh, I don't know. Uh, oh yeah, right. This seems to be a well-known. They'll be found in the other Gospels, and that's why it'll be really important for me 
<laughs> That's why it's going to be important for me to put those verse markings down, because I don't want you to be like, you know, I said that was in Luke because it's in Luke. But the emphasis was in Mark, for instance. That's why, but when it has the verse marking, it'll be like, well, that verse marking is clearly Mark, verse marking. Because again, most of the things in Mark, when we get to there, are going to be in the other Gospels. At least, of course, in Matthew and in, in Luke. So here we go. You kind of know basic points already. Uh, for what it's worth, I believe that everything is either here going to be in Matthew or John. Mm-hmm. Okay, so here we go. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Yeah, excellent, John. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. John. King's not making stuff. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. John. And Jesus begat David the king. Wait a minute, what? <laughs> the world? Jesse. That's supposed to be Jesse. <laughs> okay, when you cross out Jesus and put Jesse, because Jesus obviously never be God, but it's Jesse begot David the king. Is that in Matthew? Yes. Yes. <laughs> that, was a trap that was a real trick question. Yeah, I wanted to put. I I started by putting questions like, "And King begot Kong," <laughs> but then I'm like, you know, I wanted to keep it on scripture, and then I give you this. All right, <laughs> David begot. See, David the King begot Solomon. Um, with her is what that should be. Who was then the wife of Uriah? Obviously, I was just typing these. Uh, if we put the right word in there, is this in Matthew? Yes. Yes. Excellent. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. John. Excellent. But as many as received him, he gave him the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. John. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. Mutual. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. John. Okay, I'm going to make this side note, because it's a fun one. Begotten. What does begotten mean? Excellent. It means from the same gene pool. Literally, the term is like for only begotten, monogenes. Genes, like generation, pardon me for saying like genital, but it goes genes. The reason I say that is when you talk to someone that's specifically group, I don't want to say who, but those, you know, they're kind of witness about Jehovah. They, um, <laughs> they're going to, uh, they're going to play this game with you and they're going to be like, well, look at it. If Jesus is begotten, he has to be made. And I'm like, actually, the word begotten literally means from the same gene pool. So what species is God? Because whatever species is God, Jesus has to be his species because they have the same genes. That's the idea. So, kind of fun. Anyway. All right. Uh, where in the world am I with that one? That's, oh, by the way, the term begotten, you know that's exclusive to one gospel. Would that make sense? Yes. It would be exclusive to John. So, all right, 
Matthew, because remember the whole issue of that being fulfilled. John will use that too, but, I mean, it, again, it's not exclusive, but a lot of these particular ones are. Then it was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping and mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Matthew, it is important to recognize only in the Gospel of Matthew does Herod murder, Herod the Great murder all of those children in Bethlehem. Why? Because two kingdoms are in conflict and they think death is going to give them victory. Didn't work out either time they got it. He came to a city, came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled what was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Matthew. In the days of John the Baptist, he came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew. What's the surefire way to know that? Kingdom of heaven. Excellent. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John. Yeah, boy. (laughs) You look at me like, come on. Uh, But it's important to note the word believes. The default, remember again, not exclusive, but the default for believe is John. Because what God wants is to be believed in. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. John, is just the next verse. Now, it's important to kind of note, by the way, Jesus clearly presents himself. Did you notice this? Jesus presents himself as judge in Matthew. When he talks about separating the sheep from the goats, he's clearly the judge. But in John, he says, I didn't come to judge. Well, which one is it? It's both. As God, he didn't come to judge. God came to save. But as the king, he's going to judge. It's kind of fun. So, all right. Number 24. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of his only begotten son. John, give me two things that will clearly typify that as John. Believe. Believe. Excellent. And? Begotten. Begotten. You guys are blessed with me. All right, this temptation ends with the challenge to throw himself off the temple. Mm. That one will that one will not be John, that will be Luke. But it's what's clear is you guys were seeing that it wasn't John. Um, or what was it, Matthew? Either. This temptation ends with the opportunity of all the kings of the world if Jesus were just to bow down to the tempter. Matthew. This temptation isn't really elaborated on this one. That's Mark. For what it's worth. And it's a kind of important note, I remind you, as a servant, you don't have to go into great detail. What God's saying is, as a servant, you're going to be tempted. You don't even really need to go into detail about it. Just know that. But you can still win. And by the way, the way that Mark presents it, too, is like there will be seasons of it. But you're tempted not on the 40th day. Like, you kind of get the idea when you look at Matthew, it's like the focus is on that 40th day. But Mark, it's like, it's tempted for 40 days. It's like, there'll be seasons set up here. And be like, <laughs> you're like, oh, easy. You still win. So. All right. Um, oh, Kristen, by the way, which one doesn't have the temptation at all? John. John. God's not tempted. 
Alright, leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled only spoken by Isaiah the prophet. Matthew. Again, because it's fulfilled. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew. What's the dead giveaway? Kingdom of heaven. You guys rock the house. Now, I'd like to think you wouldn't have been able to do this two weeks ago. I'm going to tell myself that. Um, because you guys are really you're raising the roof. <laughs> but don't be proud. Uh, I, who speak to you, am he. John, what's it kind of giveaway there? Uh, I? I am. I mean, that's kind of what he's saying. As a matter of fact, look at the words that are in italics. You know? In the essence of it, I, who speak to you, am. The, by the way, the context of that is the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, for which then she says, I know when the Messiah is coming, and he's like, I am. All right, the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah, I hope you got that one by now. And you only hear that a whole bunch of times. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, to you. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Boom. Whoever breaks, Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does not teach them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Who does and teaches them. Matthew, of course, you're right. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew! For I say to you, don't swear at all. Neither by heaven, for it's God's throne, nor by earth, for it's the footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Matthew. Going with great king on that, that's kind of a good clue. Moving right along. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Matthew. Yours is the kingdom. But seek first the kingdom of God and the righteousness and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Matthew. I'm the bread of life. John, what's the giveaway? I am. I am. I'm the bread which came down. I can't. I'm the bread which came down from heaven. Yeah, that's John. I'm the bread of life. John, I'm the bread which came down from heaven. Yeah, how about that? You didn't realize that, maybe, but there's four times he says that, in one way or another. Now, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Matthew, what's the giveaway? Kingdom of heaven. Jesus spoke again, saying, I'm the light of the world. John. That it might be fulfilled was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our, it's supposed to be our infirmities, and bore our sicknesses. Matthew. When he came to the other side of the country of the Gerasenes, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tomb. Matthew. Remember the focus on two there. Versus again, the point is he has power over the demonic world versus just the guy and his problem. When he came to the other side of the country of the Gerasenes, there met him two women. I just said that. Hello. <laughs> Stop living in the past, don't you? Um, as long as I am in the world, or as long as I am in the world. Uh, can you see I hand tight all of these? I just want you to know that. Uh, I am the light of the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's nothing to brag about, is it? It's clearly on this. 
Yeah, see, I'm just hoping that I do it poor enough. One of you is like, can I type that? <laughs> then you'd be like, boy, am I rocking this test. I'm like, you typed it. You probably <laughs> When Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, saying, Son of David, have mercy. Probably your men. Son of David, have mercy on us. <laughs> Matthew, why? Two. Two, excellent. And Son of David. So they both spoke. The Sermon on the Sending. The Sermon of the Sending. Matthew. And when he had called his twelve disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast out all kinds of sickness, all kinds of disease. Matthew. Who else gives you such power? And as you go, preach, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew. Jesus said to the most assuredly, I say to you, I'm the door of the sheep. John. Yep. I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, you will be saved, and we'll go in and out and find pasture. John. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. John. I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and I'm known by my own. John. Look at that. Do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blasphemy because I said I'm the Son of God? John. Excellent. The sermon on John the Baptist. Matthew. Surely I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he was least in the kingdom of heaven, greater than he. Matthew. 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 The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a glutton and a wine giver. Look, they accused Jesus of death. You go, uh, A friend of the <laughs> glutton part, not the wine giver. <laughs> a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is justified by her children. Matthew. 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 Excellent. See, Matthew, he's like, no, they said he's a friend of tax collectors. You can see Matthew going, I hope so. <laughs> Jesus said to her, this is, is to Mary Martha, in the resurrection and the life, he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. John, excellent. All the multitudes were amazed, and they said, could this be the son of David? Matthew, son of David. The, king, the sermon of the kingdom of heaven. Yes, I'd say that's about as simple as, right, because it has been given to you, knows the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Mm-hmm. Kingdom of heaven is like man who sows good seed in his field. Kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Kingdom of heaven is like leaven. Kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field. Kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls. Kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea. Matthew. Yeah, that, boy, that got quieter, but I'm sure you all know those, right? It's, it's almost like at this point, you're probably just, you know, you're like the nail, and you're like, I'm flat. Stop pounding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No. No. John. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command for me to come to you on the water. Matthew. The king gives such commands. I'm the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. John, I am the vine, you are the branches, you abide in me, and I am him, bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. John, behold, a woman from Caesarea, I'm sorry, from Canaan, which is actually from Caesarea, came from the region and cried out to him, Have mercy on me! She is a woman. Oh, Lord, son of David! Yes. The sermon on who is the greatest of all time. Matthew, excellent. Mm-hmm. Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew. 
Therefore, whoever, whoever, whoever humbles himself in the little child is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. For the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. You lack faith. Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of heaven. Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Matthew, who else sits on a throne like that? Kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Matthew, kingdom of heaven. Behold, two blind men sitting by the road, and when they had heard Jesus pass by, said, Have mercy on us, son of David. When the chief priest and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and children crying out in the temple, and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Matthew. Yep, that, you know, that was two kingdoms in conflict right there. Assuredly, I say to you, the tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. Matthew, man, would it be hard not to gloat if you were Matthew at that moment? I guess I'm getting in first. <laughs> king of is like a certain king who arranged the marriage for his son. Matthew, it's really important. Remember that? You hear the story, and remember there's a guy, and he isn't wearing wedding clothes, and he cats him out, and you're like, Wow, poor guy couldn't afford a tux and the guy's going to get killed for it. It's important to note the preface is it's a king who did it. And a king is the person who holds the wedding was responsible for clothing everybody in the wedding. You imagine that. And it tells us, by the way, when he does cast him out, it says, and the king said to him. That is really important. As a matter of fact, oh, that's first. This is when the king said to his servant, bind him hand and foot. <laughs> Take him away and cast him into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is, what, what, which one? Matthew. It's important that it wasn't just like the guy said cast him out. He's the king. He's clearly got it. In other words, the only guy who wouldn't be wearing a wedding outfit, by the way, would be somebody who opposed the wedding. Right. And yet the king still called him. Right. Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. Matthew. Yeah. What do you think of the Christ? Whose son is he? And the answer is the son of David. Matthew. The woe sermons. Whoa. The woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Matthew. Sermon on the end times. Gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations. And then the end will come. Kingdom of heaven is likened to ten virgins that took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country, called his own servants, and delivered his goods to them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will make you rule over many things. And then the joy of your Lord. Matthew, you might as well do that for the next one, then, because it's the same statement. Notice it's two different verses. Yep. I didn't just repeat it. It happened twice. When the Son of Man comes in his glory with all of his holy angels with him, then he'll sit on the throne of his glory. Matthew, he's sitting on a throne. The king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Matthew, it's the king's saying it. It's important to note, by the way, when he separates the two, the sheep and the goats, the sheep, he says, Come and inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. And people go, Ha, 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 see? He already preordained them to heaven, the others to hell. 
It was like, well, he's like, I prepared heaven, this place for you, before you were ever born. True. But the next group, he doesn't say, go to the place of the fire that I prepared for you. He actually says, that I prepared for the devil and his angels. In other words, he's like, I didn't build this for you. Anyway, so what's what? All right, all right. And the king went up and said to them, and surely I said to you as much as you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Machu. The chief priest, scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest, whose name was called Cutie. Matthew, right. And conscious doesn't mean Cutie, for what it's worth. Okay. Yeah. You're like, wait a minute, that's how you say that? Yeah, English is weird. Yeah. <laughs> Do you not think that I could now pray to my father and he'll provide me with 12 legions of angels? That's a king that deployed his, his uh, soldiers. But this was done that the scriptures might be fulfilled, of the prophets might be fulfilled, and all for sick and flood. Yep. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said to him, It is as he said. Matthew, it is. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They crucified him, divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled what was spoken by the prophets. Matthew. And they put over his head an accusation written against him, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. He saved others. Himself you cannot save if he is. He is the King of Israel. Let him not come down from the cross and we'll believe him. Matthew, even though it does say believe, I remember it's not exclusive. It still says he's the king of Israel. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Who has all authority? Yes. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Matthew, that's how the book ends. Remember, and then the line with you. How'd you do? Do you think you did all right? Do you think you're kind of getting this? Yeah. Okay, last thing, and then we wrap this up, and we're just about time here. This is the Gospel of Mark 1. Remember how I said that you want to mark, no pun intended, how those three sections work out? I did the one for Mark, but keep that in mind when you do the Luke one as well. There's one thing I want you to take note of. Remember, you're reading this with a concept that Mark presents Jesus as what? Excellent. The servant under all. What I want you to note is how many times the uh, attention is given to massive amounts of people coming to be served. So keep in mind, like, what you'll find is that it keeps becoming a reoccurring theme here in the Gospel of Mark. That it'll be like, Jesus, he heals someone and he says, don't tell anyone about it. But the guy does tell someone about it tell everyone about it, and then he can't be alone with people, because I remind you, one of the focuses of Mark is that he wants these one-on-ones, true service in Jesus' eyes, he wants to have a one-on-one with. As a king, he can do it with two, or he can do it as a declaration, or teach the masses, but what you're going to find is, when a servant genuinely starts serving individuals, what starts to happen is that massive amounts of people break out as a result of it. And so there'll be a real emphasis on this fact that Jesus is like working late, he's getting up early, he is going to be praying, he's going to be all these things that of course will be emphasized in Luke, but he's going to, Matthew's going to tell, or Mark's going to tell us too, because he's like, as a servant, you really need to be prayed up. So, uh, so when you take that, I want you to go and um, 
you know, I have here about things like the writer and the recipients and all of that. Uh, the first half, by the way, of the book really emphasizes the miracles aspect of it. I want to see so much of that. There's no real emphasis of Jesus' divinity. Again, not that Mark says he isn't, but of course, that's not the point of Mark's, you know, there's no virgin birth. Only three times are you going to see the Son of God mentioned that way, but it focuses on one-on-one. It focuses on details of people. So, for instance, when you see particular people, there's going to be a lot of attention, like the demoniac that's over in the gatherings. You see more information about him there. And the idea of it is, it's like, Mark wants you to know how bad this guy needs to be served before Jesus gets there and serves him. Kind of the idea. And the focus on the multitude thronging him. So, uh, key words, by the way, you'll notice the word immediately. As a matter of fact, you'll find that the word immediately is mentioned 36 times in this book. That tells you a lot. Now, it's not exclusive to the book, but what you're going to find is the servant doesn't just go, may I get around to it. I don't know if you guys heard, uh, just this last week, um, there's a couple policemen that are on, um, that are being uh, brought to trial because they had gotten a call on their radio about a, a, a guy had called because his friend was suicidal and he was concerned about it. So they took the call, and then they drove through McDonald's, got tea, parked it around about, had their tea, and then went into the situation by the time they got there, the guy killed himself. Rough thing to cop. Now, you get particular codes for when something happens. Uh, and there's one, the, the, I think the bigger one is immediate. Immediate means you need to be there right now. The second, by the way, I think it's substantial or something like that. I think it's an S versus an I. And it's kind of like, yeah, this is, this is a legitimate threat. Get there. But the most immediate threat, of course, is immediate. And I just think that's interesting because it's the same word that Mark uses here 36 times. I think there's a point to that. So with that in mind, um, have a lot of fun this week reading Mark. I want to pray for you guys. Uh, hopefully this has been fun for you. It's been a lot of fun for me watching your brains explode. Uh, Remember, Mark is only 15 chapters, so if you're the kind that has been reading with me, I kind of read almost all of, uh, all of Matthew the next day, because I'm so excited about this. Uh, there are going to be some things that you're going to see, by the way. You may not see it as much, and so I just wanted to kind of take a look at it. Jesus' specific ministry, the way that he does it, is recorded in Mark more than anywhere else. The words that he says, that he spits and makes mud, and he puts, you know, he spits in a guy's eyes, or the one time that he actually goes and he asks, how is it now? And he's like, people look like trees. And he's like, okay, let's do this again. And I love the fact that Mark really shows you the process of it more than anyone else. I'm saying, tell us the kumi, these particular statements that are in Aramaic. Um, very, very specific ones that I think are really cool. So you kind of, I mean, in other words, kind of, when you read it, be like, you know, I know you know that God wants us to be servants. You know, I mean, we read about our king, and what we realize in the end of it all is he's just bad. I mean, in the best of ways, he's all good, but he's like, you know, he's, he's king over everything, and nothing compares. We get that through all of, of Matthew, and nothing has dominion over him. The father that he chooses to submit to, but he's king over all. But in Mark, now we take it to ourselves. And so when you read this, don't just kind of roll through it really quick, but kind of get to that place where you read and you see a situation, and Jesus is sitting with a little girl, and he's like, raising her from the dead, or he's talking to a guy, and he's pulling him aside, and the guy can't hear, and he goes like this, and you're like this, you know, and he's not like making faces, he's like, what is it like, you know, he's like, okay, well, Espasa, be open, I mean, be there for that moment, because Mark is going to be, that's going to be the exclusive moment for Mark, 
I mean, these little moments where you look and go, wow, that was, I mean, for, let's face it, for the guy that received it, or the girl that received it, it was the most important moment in history for her up to that point. So I just wanted it to be important for us as we read through it. So, let me pray for you guys and myself. Excited to read through Mark. Probably want to read through everything. So, uh, pray with me, would you please? Lord, I want to thank you so much for what we're already starting to learn in our first couple weeks. I thank you, Lord, for the way that we're going to uh, <clears throat> start seeing how you want us to live uh, through uh, Mark, Lord, as a servant. And I do pray, Lord, I think it's so beautiful that this is the one that has the most shared information is the one about a servant, because clearly that relates to our king, because that's who we serve, and that also relates to the humanity, because that's who we are, serving our king. And in between a human being and the king of kings is a servant, and that's the way it should be. And I thank you for that. So thank you for putting them in that order. And I just pray, Lord, that as we read it, you would teach us how to be servants. We'll see those moments. We've seen our king driven by compassion. Now show us as servants how we need to be driven by compassion. We've seen that as servants we're going to learn how important it is to be in prayer and to be prayed up. And Lord, how it's important it is for us to be available for those things that happen in route, as well as those things that are already on the diary that we need to see done. So Lord, please let us learn how to be servants from this and transform our lives by this, we pray. So that Lord we could be the servants you call us to be as we have a perfect example to Jesus Christ. So bless this time as we get in your word in Jesus' name. Amen.